Father, we've been praying as we've sung that you might show us Christ through your word. And that is the prayer of our hearts. By your spirit, open our eyes to see your truth, that we might marvel at it, receive it, believe it, and obey it. For your name's sake. Amen. I live in Oxford, and about seven, eight years ago, I moved into a new home. It's a lovely new home, and a friend of mine hadn't been to see it before, and he was passing through just about three years ago, and he was making all the right noises, very complimentary. And then just as he was about to go, he noticed a crack by one of the walls, and he said, oh, that doesn't look good. That doesn't look at all good. You better check that out. Now, I'd seen that crack many times. It's very obviously there. And it never worried me before. I'd go to bed. And I didn't imagine that during the middle of the night the the whole house was going to come crashing down. But on that particular evening, I was a bit nervous because my friend had said, you better check that out. So I went to the survey that I'd had done before I bought the house. Because if you're wise, before buying a house, you check its sound. And I read through it and I discovered that the surveyor had noticed the crack and said, no, these are just small cracks. They're just superficial. The foundations are sound. The building is secure. And I went to bed relaxed. And I've not worried since. But it's important before committing yourself to the Christian faith that you check that, as it were, the building is sound and secure Luke wrote this gospel as part of a two-volume book, Luke's gospel and then the book of Acts. Of course, in the way our New Testaments are arranged, there's uh, John, John's gospel, in between Luke and Acts, but it's really just one volume in two parts. Luke's gospel, an account of the life and teaching of Jesus until his resurrection, and then the book of Acts, taking the story onwards after Jesus has ascended and the gospel gets spread to the ends of the earth. And he writes this two-volume work to a man he calls, verse 3, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus is a Greek name. It literally means lover of God, one who loves God. And some have even suggested this is an imaginary figure. It speaks to anyone who loves God. It's a book written to lovers of God the world over. I think much, much more likely... This was a real person, Theophilus. And we're not quite sure where he stood Christian-wise. It's possible he was not a believer yet. And Luke writes this gospel, notice verse 4, that you may have have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Perhaps Theophilus has heard the Christian gospel. And he's about to commit, but before, as it were, buying the product, he orders a survey. And he says to Luke, could you just tell me, is there sound reason to believe this? Is the building secure? And Luke says, look, here's the survey. I'm telling you about the things that you've been taught so that you may be sure about them. I think more likely Theophilus had already become a Christian. And it was tough. Following Jesus Christ is not always easy. It means living in the world in a different way to the way in which other people live. 
Christians are called to go one way through life with Jesus Christ as Lord, and everyone else is going another way, living for themselves or for other gods. And Theophilus must have found it hard. And certainly in Luke's second volume, it becomes clear that there's persecution. There are difficulties in following Jesus Christ. And there, perhaps, Theophilus needs to reassure himself, as it were, look at the survey again, and just remind himself that what he committed to was sound. There's good reason to believe it. And therefore to keep on living for Jesus Christ, even when it's hard. Well, I don't know most of you. I've met a few yesterday, one or two this morning. And it may well be that there's some of you who are not yet committed believers in Jesus Christ. And you realize that if you did commit to Jesus Christ, there would be real changes demanded in your life. And some of those changes are not easy. And you need to make sure before committing to such a huge thing that what you'd be committing to was sound and Luke is giving you this gospel and saying, I want you to know for sure that the things you're being invited to commit to are reliable. And then there'd be many of you, some I know because I've met you, who'd say, no, I'm a committed believer in Jesus Christ. I began to follow him. In some cases, a few months ago or years ago, in other cases, decades ago. And it's not always easy living the Christian life. And for some of you right now, you're conscious of real challenges. The challenges every day, but sometimes there are particular challenges. It's a real cost. Committing to Jesus Christ means saying no to something that you long to say yes to, and it's hard. And Luke presents this gospel. And rather like I had to check the survey and to be reassured that I wasn't foolish in buying that house. Luke is saying, I, I want you to read this gospel that you might be reminded that what you've committed to is sound, it's secure. I want you to know the certainty of these things so that you keep on following Jesus Christ in a committed way, even when it's costly. And today we're looking at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And we find the foundations already established in these early verses of chapter 1. And as you see from the outline, there are three themes I want us to notice. That Christianity is historical, it's supernatural, and it's personal. First, it's historical, and that's the theme of the first four verses. I was raised in a Christian home, or at least a church-going home. I went to church every Sunday. I went to a school where we were required to go to chapel, sometimes morning and evening. So I had a lot of religion, a lot of Christian religion, but I assumed in my teenage years that what I was hearing was essentially myth. There probably was some foundation to it, but I couldn't take it seriously, historically. My approach to Jesus Christ was rather like my approach to Robin Hood. Have you ever seen one of the Robin Hood films? Robin Hood probably existed. We can't be sure. But there probably was someone who lived in uh, the forest who was very concerned for the poor and maybe sometimes took money from the rich to give it to the poor. Quite possibly there was a Robin figure out there. But as you watch the films that Hollywood produce about Robin Hood, you don't think you're watching a historical survey of reality. This is based on possibly some degree of history and then it's been told and retold over the years and what you see in the Hollywood movies is myth. 
with some kind of historical kernel behind it. And I read the New Testament, or I heard it read in church, and I assumed that almost certainly there was a real man called Jesus of Nazareth who spoke. He was a remarkable man in many ways. And then I thought that the story has been told and retold and told and retold over many, many years. And so what, what, what we've got today is essentially myth with perhaps some kind of historical kernel. But we can't take this stuff out here seriously, historically. I was not a committed Christian. But Luke tells us right at the beginning of his gospel, what I'm speaking about really happened. It's historical. He speaks of his comprehensive research. Based, verse 1, on written sources. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Many people have written it down. We've got four such documents in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you've read the Gospels, you'll know that there are many verbal similarities, especially with the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes called the synoptic Gospels, because there are so many verbal parallels, and uh, theologians debate and discuss as to, to how they're related. No one can be sure. The suggestion is maybe Mark was the earliest, and... Matthew and Luke had a copy of Mark's gospel in their hands, as it were, when they wrote their own documents. But there were probably other documents as well of the writings and the deeds, the sayings of Jesus. A number of people had written it down because these were so remarkable. And Luke has got these different documents together. He's read them all. It's a comprehensive research, written sources and eyewitnesses as well, verse 2 just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. It's one of the surprises I had when I began to read the New Testament, that this was not written as myth. But again and again, you've got the claim that those who were writing were writing either as eyewitnesses themselves or on the basis of eyewitness testimony, like Luke. For instance, John. John, in his first letter, said that uh, what we've heard, what we've seen with our own eyes, what our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. Couldn't be more clear. He's not saying I'm passing on to you something that's been passed on to me and passed on to someone else uh, over generations and then I'm writing it down. No, I'm telling you about what I've heard, what I've seen with my own eyes, what I've touched with my own hands. Or Peter, in his second letter. And by the way, we learned from early Christian tradition that Mark was writing down what he'd been told by Peter. And Peter, in his second letter, says that uh, we, we do not follow cleverly invented stories. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We've seen it. Luke himself is making a rather modest claim. He's not saying, I myself have seen these things. He didn't literally see Jesus. Almost certainly, Luke, who wrote this gospel, is the one who's referred to by the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 4, where Paul speaks of our dear friend, Luke, the doctor. He was a medical professional who was a close friend of the Apostle Paul, 
almost certainly a companion with Paul on the second missionary journey. It's interesting, in volume two of Luke's two-volume work, suddenly there's a shift in the narrative. He's been speaking about other people, and then suddenly at one point in the second missionary journey, he begins to talk about we. We went here, we did this. Luke has joined Paul on that journey. Luke knew Paul very well. He knew many early Christians. He knew those who had actually seen Jesus. And so not only has he gathered together those who've written down about the life and teaching of Jesus, he's also spoken to those who actually saw him. Very comprehensive research. It seems very likely that Luke wrote his two-volume work in the 60s AD. The book of Acts ends very abruptly. Before Paul's death. That's strange. If Paul, the apostle, had already died, it seems inevitable, surely, that Luke would have referred to his death. But he doesn't. The book of Acts ends with Paul still preaching in Rome. And yet we know from early Christian tradition that he died in the 60s, probably the early 60s. And so one possible date for this two-volume work is the early 60s AD, maybe 62 AD, we can't be sure. But we're talking here about not a long period between Jesus' actual ministry on earth and his death and when Luke wrote it down. Maybe about 30 years. Now to some of you who are very young, 30 years seems like an awful long time. It used to seem quite a long time to me. It doesn't seem so long anymore. If I go back 30 years, I go back to the time just after I'd left school. Left high school at 18, I'm now 48, so we're talking 30 years. I can remember it vividly. There are some things that are hazy. I couldn't tell you what I did on the 1st of December in 1983 because it wasn't a particularly significant day to me. But I can remember the the things that stood out and what Luke is referring to here are not sort of run-of-the-mill things. Jesus was a remarkable man. You don't forget in the space of 30 years someone as remarkable as Jesus. It's comprehensive research and painstaking. He says, verse 3, that we carefully investigated everything, having followed all things closely for some time past. He says, I've really looked into this. I've wanted to make sure that what I'm writing down is true. So I've put a lot of effort into this. Though straight away you realize that um, Luke is making no effort to hide the fact that this is his production. He's put a huge amount of effort into writing his, his history. And so straight away we see that the Bible is making claims about itself which is very different from the claim of a book like the Quran. The Bible is manifestly a human book. Well, come on to say it's not just a human book, but it is a human book. Now, Muslims wouldn't think the same about the Quran. In Muslim view, the Quran just is the revelation of God, and Muhammad simply wrote down the words that the angel Gabriel gave him. He wasn't involved in any other way, in the production of the Quran. It was, as it were, just dictated to him. That's the Islamic belief. Whereas Christians have no embarrassment about saying, the Bible's a human book, 
in the sense that human beings wrote it. And Luke is saying, I went into great effort. I had to think about this. I had to gather the research. I wrote down, after working hard, what I know is true. It's human. And yet at the same time, Christians believe it's divine. Because God ensured that what those human beings wrote was exactly what he wanted them to write. And so as you read the Bible, you'll find different books. There are 66 of them, written by about 40 different human authors, bearing the different personalities and writing styles of those different authors. And yet one book with one great message, the Old Testament pointing forward to Christ, the New Testament proclaiming Christ, as God the Holy Spirit ensured that all those different human authors with their different personalities and their different styles were writing exactly what he wanted them to write. Comprehensive and painstaking and selective. Verse 3, I've gone to great efforts to write to you an orderly account. He had a huge amount of material, but he selected what he put into this book. He arranged it to serve his particular purpose, which is to persuade Theophilus that he hadn't made a mistake. Either if he was a non-Christian that there was good reason to believe this, and that he was a Christian, there was good reason to believe what he's already believed and to keep on with it. We need to take the gospel writers seriously as those who had arranged their material. I used to um, imagine that the gospel writers had a a whole jumble of different uh, sayings and teachings of Jesus, and uh, if you played Scrabble, you put all the different pieces of Scrabble into, into a, a bag and you jumble them around and then you take them out at random. And I had an image in my mind of lots of different independent sayings and teachings of Jesus. It was as if the gospel writers put them in the bag and then out they came kind of at random and so you can read one bit of the, of the gospel independently of everything else because it doesn't matter where they come. Whereas actually Luke's carefully arranged his gospel which is why when you go through the book of uh, Luke You need to take into account, where have we just been? Where are we just about to go? It's a carefully structured account. And you'll see as you work through Luke that it's mainly a travel book. Luke describes a journey. In the first nine chapters, predominantly after the introduction, Jesus is in Galilee, up in the north of the country, teaching. And then... From chapter 9, verse 51 onwards, there's a twist. And Luke tells us from now on, he's on a journey. Ultimately, it's a journey to heaven, but it's going to take him via the cross in Jerusalem. And so we're traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. And the whole book is pointing us to Jesus heading to the cross in Jerusalem. And then the book of Acts is a travel narrative as well. It begins in Jerusalem, as Jesus from heaven gives instructions to the disciples to go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And in the book of Acts, the gospel does indeed go out from Jerusalem to Judea, which is the region just outside Jerusalem, to Samaria, the first step outside kosher Judaism, until the ends of the earth, and the book of Acts ends in Rome. It's carefully structured from Galilee to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to the to the ends of the earth as the good news of Jesus spreads out. This is history. Christianity is not just a philosophy. Buddhism is a philosophy. 
if it could be proved that Gautama, the Buddha, never existed, it wouldn't change Buddhism at all. It doesn't depend on any history. Whereas Christianity is based on real events, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the sending of the Holy Spirit. These things happened, and if they don't, didn't happen, Christianity falls apart. And Luke is saying, you can be sure about this. Richard Dawkins lives in Oxford. He's one of the, the chief opponents of the Christian faith today. He says this about Christian faith, in fact, about any kind of faith. He says, faith is an evil precisely because it requires no justification and brooks no argument. Faith means blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. Well, that's a definition of faith that I don't think any Christian would recognize. It's certainly not a definition of faith the Bible recognizes. Faith is not in the absence of evidence or in the teeth of evidence, Quite the opposite, Luke is giving us evidence. He's saying, I'm giving you good reasons to believe this. It really happened. And this evidence is backed up by non-Christian sources. Pliny, the elder, the Roman historian, Tacitus, the Roman historian, Josephus, the Jewish historian, they all speak of Jesus, his life, his miracles, his death, even his claimed resurrection. Christians believe these things. They suffered for them. They died for them. And these are facts that the ancient world knew well. Something caused these Christians to go out into the known world proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah who died and rose. And they did it at huge cost. What caused those ripples to go out? And Luke says, because Jesus really existed, really did teach these things, really did rise from the dead. You can be sure about these things. Christianity is historical. Second, it's supernatural. That's verses 5 to 17. And Luke begins his gospel with telling us about the first historical event that he wants to focus on. He takes us to the temple at the time of the reign of Herod. The temple, if you'd gone to Jerusalem, would have risen above the whole city. It was a magnificent building. And a very significant building as well. It said, as soon as you arrived in Jerusalem, God is here. It was a symbolic place in which God himself dwelt. God is here. God is very close amongst us. And yet while proclaiming the nearness of God, it also proclaimed very clearly that you couldn't get too close to him. The temple said, God is here, but it also said, don't come too close. And as you approach the temple, you'd have seen a whole series of no-entry signs. The first would have said, no entry to Gentiles. Only non-Jews could get closer. Then it would have said, no entry to women. Only Jewish men could get into the next court. And then no entry to laity. Only Jewish priests could go in the next court. And then a big no-entry sign before you, you entered the, the holy place, only a very small number of priests to offer the sacrifices, and then a massive no-entry sign. It was a huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And only one man went in there once a year, the chief priest on the Day of Atonement. Well, it's in this temple area that Luke takes us 
And he speaks of two godly Jews. He says, verse 5, there was a priest named Zechariah and his wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. These were Jews who had very good religious pedigree. Zechariah was a priest set apart for the service of God in the temple. Elizabeth was descended from Aaron. Aaron was the first priest and the Levites are descended from Aaron. These are the priestly tribe. And so they're both very, very high in religious pedigree. And they're godly too, verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the law. But there's a problem, verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. We're told straight away, by the way, that you can be very godly and yet experience great hardship in life. Do not believe the lie that if you're really godly, then you can expect everything to go smoothly and well. And if things are not going smoothly and well, it's a sign of the judgment of God. Here were two very godly people. And yet they have no children and they're advanced in years. And we're meant to get the point that Elizabeth is past childbearing age. Maybe there's some here who have to face that particular pain, longing to have children, not being able to. And this was the agony that these two godly Jews, Zechariah and Elizabeth, have to face. There were about 8,000 priests at this time, and they were split into 24 divisions of priests with about 300 in each, And they'd take it in turns, these divisions, to be on duty. Each would be responsible for two weeks' duty a year. And every day, while they were on duty, they'd take lots twice a day to see which priest, just one of them, would go into the holy place to offer incense. So this is a very rare privilege. It would be a kind of -of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for most priests that your lot was drawn This is what happens to Zechariah. Verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So he goes into the holy place. He may well never have been there before. You can imagine his heart beating fast. Before him he could see the massive great curtain that separated the Holy of Holies where only the one priest went once a year from the rest of the temple. In front of him was the altar of incense. As the animal burned, the animal that had been sacrificed for the sins of the people, so incense would be placed on burning coals. It was a symbol that was a way of saying that they were offering the sacrifice to God in the incense of prayer. The incense spoke of prayer going up to God. It was a prayer for God's forgiveness on the basis of this sacrifice and that God would bless them on the basis of this sacrifice that had been offered. And so Zechariah puts the incense on the altar. And then suddenly, to the right of the altar of incense, he sees an angel. In verse 12, not surprisingly, we read Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. It's putting it mildly, isn't it? And fear fell upon him. This is not a normal sight. He's terrified. 
But the angel reassures him, verse 13, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Zechariah means God has remembered. And the angel is saying, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. And immediately we, we might think, oh, he must have been praying for a son because the angel says, you're going to have a son. But I think that's very unlikely. For a start, it's just too late. She's way past the menopause. I think they would have been praying for years, but it's unlikely that they kept praying. Now, she's much too old. And anyway, once he's told that they are going to have a kid, he doesn't believe it, which is unlikely if he'd been praying desperately. I think much more likely he'd been praying for the redemption of Israel. Just as in Luke chapter 2, Two elderly people in the temple in Israel, Anna and Simeon, who'd been praying daily for the redemption of Israel. In other words, for God to fulfill his promises for Israel and for Jerusalem. Because they knew that God had made amazing promises. The miraculous birth of John, the son that was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, reminds us of another birth to aged parents way back in the Old Testament. See, what we got here in Luke's gospel is the continuation of a story that began right back at creation. The Bible is one story. It's the great story into which all the little stories of our lives fit. The Bible tells a story of the world which is linear. Some worldviews are cyclical. Everything's just going round and round in a circle. It's heading nowhere. There's no particular order. There's no particular pattern. But the Bible tells a story that had a particular beginning and will have a particular end. It begins with creation. God made the heavens and the earth. Then comes the fall. Human beings rebel against God and they face his judgment and separation from him. And that's where the Bible could have ended because we've rejected God. We deserve his condemnation. But then, wonderfully, comes promise. God graciously comes to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you're going to have many descendants. And I'm going to bless them. I'm going to give you a land to live in. And through your descendants, all nations in time will be blessed. Through your seed. We're waiting for a son of Abraham who will bring blessing to all the nations. But the problem is, Abraham and Sarah... Just like Zechariah and Elizabeth are old. And Sarah is way past childbirth. She's got no kids. And then an angel comes and says to Sarah, you're going to have a boy. Do you know what she did? She laughed. It was laughable that an aging lady could have a kid. She just laughed. But sure enough... She began to put on weight, and people said, don't you think you should have a diet, Sarah? And she was a bit worried, and the old clothes didn't fit. And then after a while, she realized she was going to have a baby. And age 90, imagine her on a Zimmer frame, she went along to the hospital. And the nice nurse at the door said, hello, dear. Uh, Do you want the geriatric department? It's just down the corridor on the right. We'll get a chair for you. And she said, no, I want the maternity ward. Oh, how lovely. Great, great grandchild. And she said, no, I'm, I'm going to have a baby. And they tried to point her to the psychiatric department. 
But she said, no, I'm going to have a baby. And how they laughed. But she did have a baby. And they called him Isaac, which means laughter. It was laughable. It was a miracle of God. And so God's gospel promise was beginning to be fulfilled. And sure enough, Isaac had children, and the next generation had children, and Abraham's children became a great nation, as was promised. And then, in time, the prophet said that from Abraham's line, there was going to be one great Messiah. You see, the problem was that the children of Abraham did enter a land that God had promised, but they continued to disobey God. They were under God's judgment. But the prophet said, in the future, there's going to be one of Abraham's line, a son of David, who'll come, and he'll put everything right when he comes. And the last prophet, or one of the very last prophets, the prophet Malachi, said, before he comes, there'll be one who'll be like Elijah, who was the great prophet. And he'll come to prepare the people before the great day when the Lord comes. We read that in our first reading from Malachi. And the angel speaks to Zechariah and says, he's coming, he's coming. To herald that fact, you're going to have a baby. And Elizabeth will give birth and you should call him John, verse 13. And the word John means God has been gracious Verse 15, he's to be set apart for the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He's to be a Nazarite. Samson was a Nazarite. It's a special order who was set apart for the service of the Lord. They should not take any alcohol. They shouldn't cut their hair. That's why Samson didn't cut his hair. They should never touch a dead body. They're specially consecrated to the Lord. And this John is to have a special role. Verse 16, he's to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. Well, 400 years passed. And at last, the prayer of the generations is answered. A prayer that Zechariah would have prayed himself. God has remembered. Remember, that's what Zechariah means. God has remembered. Your prayer has been answered. This supernatural birth bears witness to a coming supernatural salvation that's been prepared by God for centuries. The final great prophet's about to come. And his task is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord, the Messiah. In the seminar yesterday morning, I mentioned the American preacher and pastor, Francis Schaeffer. And Francis Schaeffer used to keep insisting Christianity is supernatural. And we moderns today, we're slightly embarrassed about that. So when we come across angels, we think, oh dear, we can't, we need to sort of, we suddenly don't want to start there when we explain the Christian message to non-Christians because they're going to say, oh, that's a load of nonsense. So we'd rather start somewhere else that doesn't mention embarrassing things like angels. But Schaefer always wanted to start with something like an angel. And that's where Luke begins. Because that makes it clear straight away, we're not talking about something that human beings can work out. This is not something that can be placed in normal human categories. This is supernatural. Christianity is supernatural. It does not begin with human beings on earth, scratching their heads and thinking, I wonder what God might be like. Jesus is not simply one more human being 
who's asking the question, I wonder what God might be like, and then coming up with his particular version of the answer. If that's all it is, then we can say Jesus is no more right than anyone else. But Christianity begins with God. It begins with a promise that God made generations ago to Abraham that he prepared for in Old Testament history. That the Old Testament prophets prophesied and then at last, praise God, that was fulfilled. And Zechariah's been told, this is the moment that you and the generations before you have been waiting for. God himself is acting in fulfillment of his promise. The final great prophet's coming to proclaim the coming of the Lord, the Messiah. Christianity is claiming to be not just one religion amongst many, but to be God himself coming in the person of his son Jesus, to bring salvation that's been prepared for for generations. It's supernatural. This is not an excuse for arrogance. It's not an excuse for hostility to other religions, but it is a reason for confidence and for humbly sharing with others the great truth that Jesus is the divine Son of God. Christianity is historical. It's supernatural. And then finally, it's personal. Verses 18 to 25. There was a new play that started in London, in the West End, in the the theatre land. And the, the audience was watching, and it was quite clear what was meant to happen. It was the curtain was drawn... There'd be a male actor and a female actor. There was a table, and on the table, a telephone. The telephone would be ringing. The male actor was to pick up the phone, listen for a moment, and then deliver the opening lines of the play. But as the phone rang and rang and rang, there was a look of panic on the face of the male actor. He couldn't, for the life of him, remember his opening lines. Then he had a brilliant idea. He picked up the phone, listened for a moment, and gave it to the female actor and said, it's for you. (laughs) Many people do that with Christianity. It's for you. They might be in church and they're hearing a message and they're they're thinking to themselves, I hope so-and-so is listening, I hope they're listening, but we don't think for ourselves, what do I need to do in the light of this? It's a message for you. It's very personal very striking that John is one of the key figures in the history of the world. This is the final great prophet before the coming Messiah, and yet very little is said about him at this stage. He gets just two verses, verses 16 and 17, but then there's a lot of focus on John's parents and especially his father's response to what the angel has just said. From verse 18 to 25, that's all about Zechariah and his response. We know he's a righteous man, but he does not believe the word of God. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's responding like Abraham and Sarah to the news that Sarah was going to give birth to a child. It's laughable. He says, how could this possibly be? We're both extremely old. It can't happen. He should have known better. God had performed the miracle before. 
Isaac was born. God had said that he was going to fulfill his prophecies of the Old Testament. Zechariah had been praying that God would do it. He'd been praying, as all the priests were, that God would fulfill his promises to Israel, that the Messiah would come. And when this news is coming, that the Messiah is about to come, John doesn't believe it. And God judged him. Verse 19. The angel said, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so the, the tongue that expressed words of unbelief is silenced. Outside, there's increasing concern. As John doesn't reappear, Zechariah rather doesn't reappear. Has something happened? Has he had a heart attack, a stroke or something? Should they send someone in? And eventually, after a long period of great concern, out he comes. But doesn't say anything. He's just making signs. And they realize something very remarkable has happened. But he can't speak to explain it. And yet, it's not long before Elizabeth becomes pregnant. And the miracle happens. Zechariah's experience is a reminder that the word of God, the gospel, demands the response of faith. It's global. It speaks of the hinge of history. The message of Jesus Christ's coming has cosmic implications. It's for the whole world, and yet it's not only global, it's intensely personal. Every individual must respond. And the need for response to the word of God is a very important theme in the whole of Luke and Acts. Acts chapter 1 verse, uh, Luke chapter 1 verse 2 rather, Luke speaks of those who were servants of the word. And the word of God is a theme that runs all the way through, through Luke and Acts. It's there at the beginning of Luke. Luke got his gospel from those who were servants of the word. It's at the end of Luke. As right at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus sends his disciples out to preach the word of God. It's there at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. As Jesus again sends his disciples to go out and preach the word. And all the way through the gospel, uh, through the book of Acts rather, Luke is telling us how the word spread to different places. And there at the very end of the book of Acts, the last two verses, what's Paul doing? He's preaching the word in Rome, the center of the known world. And as the word goes out, it's very important, Luke tells us, to respond rightly. Again, it's a theme you'll be spotting as you go all the way through Luke. Over and over again, it's stressed. We must be like the wise builders who hear the word of God and believe it and put it into practice. Chapter 8 of Luke's gospel, Mary Mary and uh, Jesus' brothers come and the disciples say, your mother and brothers are waiting to speak to you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? My mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. That's how we become members of God's family, by hearing the message and believing it. And Zechariah doesn't do it. Verse 19, he hears the good news, the gospel. But verse 20, you did not believe my words. There's a contrast with the next episode you'll be looking at in the next section of Luke. 
Mary also hears the good news proclaimed to her by an angel, and she says, chapter 1, verse 38, let it be to me according to your word. And there's the difference. And there's the personal challenge with which we should end. The gospel comes to us, each of us. And the question is, will we believe it? Do we respond to the message of the gospel, the word of God, with faith? Do we put it into practice? That's the challenge for you as a congregation. It's wonderful. Week by week, the word of God is right at the center of these meetings. Are you coming together hungry to hear it? Or is this just something you do on a Sunday? And you drift in and you drift out. Or are you together saying, Lord, speak to us. And together, as a congregation, wanting to hear what God is saying so that together you can put into practice. And together you can be encouraging each other and praying for one another as you live out these words. It's to happen corporately. And it's to happen individually as well. Perhaps you feel the challenge of being a Christian. Because in some area of life, you know it would be much easier if you weren't a Christian. Maybe some relationship. And you know that God would say, this isn't right. But you don't want to end it. Or you want to pursue it. And you've got a challenge. Or maybe at work. The culture of your workplace is to live in ways that don't fit with what you know the Bible says you should be living by. And that's challenging. It'd be much easier if you didn't believe these things. And Luke says, I want you to know that what I'm saying is true. I want you to be sure about it. And as I proclaim the word of God to you, I want you to be like Mary, not like Zechariah. I want you to hear, to know these things are true, and then to put them into practice. These are the people in Luke's gospel who receive the wonders of salvation. Those who hear this gospel, believe it, and put it into practice. So we need to think as we close, what does this mean for me this week? Am I making an effort to hear this good news? I might have heard it many times before. Am I keeping on receiving it? And then will I live it out in the details of my life, whatever the cost? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the assurance that these things really happen. They're historical. They're not just being dreamt up by human beings. They're supernatural. And they don't simply have a global significance. They are very personal as you speak to us in the details of our lives. So please help us to receive your word, to believe it, and to obey it, whatever the cost, for Jesus' sake. Amen.